What is your most treasured possession? It's an interesting question to think about. If you, you know, the, the way it oftentimes goes is if you were uh, waking up in a, in a house fire and you, your family was already safe and, and you were on your way out and you could only grab one thing, what would that thing be? What's the one thing that you would take? We're not talking about pets. We're not talking about wife, children, husband, any of those things. But what's the treasured possession that you would grab? I would venture to say, based on generations, a lot of you might say photo albums. Right? For me, that's a little unique because we today live in the world of digital photos. And so my photos exist in two different clouds and six different hard drives in three different places one of them being here in my office downstairs. And so for me, there's not a photo in the house that I would feel compelled to grab because we have them all stored. But, but for me, there, there are a couple things that are treasured possessions. And here's the interesting thing. For some of us, for most of us, they're not necessarily valuable things per se. They're worth a lot of money and those kinds of things. They're usually sentimental things that are irreplaceable. And so, for instance, if I had the choice between my more than like $2,000 MacBook Pro or my first guitar that's probably worth just a couple hundred bucks, I would grab that guitar. Because I can buy another computer. I can never buy another first guitar. Right? We all have valuable things in our lives that we care about so deeply. Honestly, today, if I were leaving my house and my family was safe, I would probably grab my guitar along with a box of mementos, things that I've gotten from my wife, things that relate to our first son, you know, those kinds of memento boxes that we have from maybe your wedding, from the birth of your first child or second child or third child, and so on. You would grab those things that are irreplaceable to you because you cannot get them again. It's interesting to think about the things that we value. We all value different things. Each of us would grab different things out of our house, but we all value vastly different things. Today we're not actually looking at one, but two parables. And in these two parables, Jesus is talking about value. He's trying to ascribe to, to a human ear the value of the kingdom of God. And so because we don't live in the kingdom, there's some challenges that are presented. I mean, we live in the kingdom, but not in a final kind of way. And so there's some problems that we have when it comes to understanding the majesty and the breadth and the value of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus puts in the two parables we're going to look at today, very, very short parables, so probably a shorter sermon. He, he puts those kinds of concepts, what is it that the kingdom of God is worth, into an earthly sense that we as his people can understand. And on the surface, the meaning of these parables is pretty obvious. This isn't one of those where you read it and go, oh my gosh, I need like 16 commentaries and four Bible studies. And No, it's pretty obvious to glean from the parables today what you're going to glean. He's talking about how valuable the kingdom of God is. It is unsurpassingly valuable. There is nothing greater than it. And as we read our passage today, we'll understand that. But... He also, in subtle ways, by using the metaphors that he does, gives us a really detailed glimpse into exactly how God's kingdom is more valuable than anything we could ask for or imagine, and how we are to look at it. And so let's, let's pray together this morning before we take a look um, at Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46. Let's pray.
Oh God, that your spirit would come into this place. Father, this place here where I'm standing today and preaching, and this place where people will be listening, and this place right now, all through people's homes, those places where, where this is coming through the TVs and the iPads and the phones. Father, I ask that your spirit would descend on each and every home of people listening this morning so that we might hear from your word, that you would speak from it clearly, that you would use me to say the things that you want, and Father, that you would shut down the things that you don't want said. And we pray together that all of us might be changed and transformed and shaped by your living and breathing word. It's in your name that we ask this, Lord Jesus. We love you and we praise you. And all his people said, Amen. Let's take a look at our passage for this morning. It's Matthew 13, 44 through 46. Uh, it says this. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy he goes and he sells everything he has and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and he sold everything that he had and he bought it. And so there's two stories that Jesus tells, both of them about them finding something of unsurpassing value and getting rid of everything else they have and then acquiring that thing. And so the obvious parallel here is that the thing that they find is the kingdom of God. Right? And that they get rid of all their other possessions. So when they encounter God, when they come to know him, when we come to know him, everything else fades away in terms of value. And these two examples are willing for the pearl and for the treasure to get rid of every single thing that they own in order that they might acquire that one thing. It tells you about what they value. They sell off everything else. It doesn't say they kept their IRAs, their 401ks. They maintained some savings and sold off most things. They kept their house. No, they got rid of everything. House, livestock, all savings, everything they had to acquire this one particular thing because they saw the value in it. But each of these passages is actually vastly different. And for as short of a time as we are spending in Scripture today with these three little tiny verses, there's a whole lot to unpack in here. And so let's look at each of the stories by themselves for just a little bit and see the little subtleties that we can pull out and understand how God's kingdom works and how valuable it truly is. Let's start first with the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. And so the kingdom of heaven is this treasure that's buried, and the man finds it and buries it then again, and he runs quickly and sells all the things he has and buys that particular field. We can infer a few things here. Number one, this guy is a field worker, and so he's likely not very wealthy. If you're working in a field in that time, you're, you're pretty poor, and you're working in that field. And the other thing that we can infer, because he was working in the field, is that it was likely not his own field. Right? This isn't well, we obviously know that because he goes and buys it. But this is a poor man who is working in another person's property, and he finds it. And so there's some things we have to understand. We have to deal with the ethical question here. Because I don't know about you, when I read this, I ask myself, isn't this a little sketchy? This guy is, is just working in a field. If it was my field and I had workers working in it, and they found buried treasure in my field... 
If someone was pulling weeds in the front yard of my house or digging a trench and they found, you know, some gold bricks, I kind of think those gold bricks ought to be mine. And so is this guy acting ethical by doing what he does? He finds the treasure and he quickly buries it back up and then he goes quietly and he, he buys the field and when it's his, he then raises presumably the treasure and, and, and lives off of it for the rest of his life happily ever after. We don't know. We have to understand that, yes, this actually was a fully ethical thing. According to Jewish law, and the rabbis backed this up over and over again at the time, they kind of played by the rule of finders keepers. So if you were working in a field and you found a treasure, it was yours. And so this man, not only does he find the treasure and it's his, but he then goes through all this length of burying it again, buying the field. Why would he do that? To remove every shred of doubt. To make sure that there was no claim that could be laid by the previous owner. They couldn't say, well, he did find it in mine, or I saw it first, or any of those things. By selling the field, the previous owner acknowledges that he is unaware of that treasure's existence. Because if he knew that the treasure was there, if it was actually theft, if he had buried it for security, and he knew it existed, he would never have sold the field to the poor person for what they could afford to pay for it. And so by, by selling off the field and by the poor guy who found it, in the, found the treasure, buying up the field, we have this clean transaction that has now taken place. There's a record that the field is now his, and he can go and he can raise the treasure, and there's never any questions asked. But the reality is, if he had found it and raised it and brought it forth, it still legally already would have been his. And so this isn't a question, this isn't a story where Jesus is suggesting unethical practices. This is just the way that culture worked at the time. And so this guy gets the field, and he has the treasure, and he sees here that it's worth so much that he goes and gets rid of all his other stuff. And in this case, it's because the treasure's worth a lot of money. Right? Presumably, this guy is thinking in his head, I'm going to spend $100 to get $100,000. That's a no-brainer transaction for me. I'm going to go take care of that right now. If I sell everything, I can afford like the tiny plot of land that this treasure is in. He probably even doesn't buy the whole field. He probably buys like a little bit of it or like a third of the field. Right? But he goes and he gets it all because the kingdom of God, and that's the parallel here, is worth, actually worth in an earthly sense to us more than all the things we have. See, our time on this earth is finite, and we get all caught up in our gadgets and gizmos and cars and houses and retirement plans and all these things. But the reality is that our time on this earth is really short-lived. We do not have but a breath as it relates to eternity. And what Jesus is trying to tell us is, listen, the kingdom of heaven really is like a treasure if you saw it for what it was worth, if you could understand what, what I can see fully, what you someday after this life will comprehend and see fully, you would happily just toss everything away. You wouldn't be a person who hoards things or holds on to things tightly. You would just throw it as if it didn't matter because you would understand that there's something so much bigger and so much greater out there. But there's a second story. And the next one is, is odd for me. It says this. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and he sold 
everything he had and he bought it. Now, on the surface, we, we read these stories and I've read these stories and a lot of times they kind of sound the same. Jesus is just repeating things because it's important. But there's some really important key differences in this second part. Number one is this. A merchant was generally someone who was wealthy. This isn't a poor guy who stumbles upon a pearl in a field and kind of sneakingly buries it, right? He, he doesn't find the pearl. He buys it. He's a pearl merchant. He's going around. He spends his whole life looking at various pearls. But he finds this one. He, he stumbles upon it. Maybe he stumbles upon it at, at a trade market where other pearl merchants have that pearl sitting there and he just has to have it. For whatever reason, though, he sees this pearl and he just simply wants to buy it. And so he goes and he sells everything he has in order to buy that one pearl. Now, a couple things. This pearl wasn't like the buried treasure. It was out in the open, which means whoever was selling it knew its value. It wasn't spend 100 to get 100,000. It was spend 100,000 to get something that's worth 100,000. Right? And so the merchant here is doing a straight transaction, which is vastly different than the laborer in the field just kind of finding something hidden away. He goes and he buys the pearl with the money that it's actually worth. He's exchanging real value for real value in an earthly sense, right? Secondly, the pearl, upon owning it, is useless to the man in any other earthly sense other than to gaze upon it and enjoy it for the beauty of what it is. He can't go buy food with it. I mean, you could, but then you wouldn't have the pearl anymore. And we already established he wants the pearl more than what it's actually worth in money terms because he gave away everything to buy it. And so he, he buys this pearl not because of the way it will change his lifestyle, not because of the fact that he will now be able to afford the finer things in life, not so that he can retire from being a merchant, but he buys the pearl simply because it is beautiful and it brings him joy. It gives him no earthly benefits other than to own it, to have it, to be in relationship, to gaze upon it. It's pointless otherwise. If he wants to gain anything from it, he has to sell it again. And he'll just be back to where he started. See, if the guy's goal was to get wealthier, to, to move himself up out of whatever economic plateau he was in, this is a terrible business transaction. The first guy, great business transaction. 1,000% return on your investment. This guy, zero ROI, none. This tells us something. See, if we see these passages side by side, we learn a couple things about the kingdom of God and how it works out in our lives. There's three. Here's number one. First, we learn that people come to God through vastly different ways. People come to know God through vastly different ways. Everybody in this room, everybody out and about, everybody in their homes, you could have thousands of different stories as to how it is you came to know the Lord. Some of you have grown up with God your entire lives. You had parents who knew the Lord, who had grandparents who knew the Lord, who had great-grandparents who knew the Lord, and you've been walking with Jesus as far as you remember. If I asked you what was the day that you committed your life to Christ, you probably couldn't even tell me because you just it's just been who you are. 
The Lord's just had you all this time and you've known it and you've walked with him. If you're like me, you came to know Jesus in high school after wrestling for quite some time. You spent your life searching. And so there's different paths that we can have. And if we look at these two parables, those are the different paths that we see. See, some, like the merchant, they've spent their whole life searching. They've looked for meaning and purpose and love in all different places. They've sunk into to lows and risen to highs, and they've found themselves empty until they come to know the kingdom of God. And nothing, nothing is like it. And so all these other ideologies and politics and belief systems and values become meaningless because when you come in contact with the risen Savior, with the God, the creator of the universe, and you understand him for who he is, even though you've been searching your whole life, now you've found it. You've been looking. Some of you haven't been looking. Maybe you're like the guy who's in, who's in the field. He wasn't looking for treasure. He was simply just going about his day, working in the field, doing the same thing that he does day after day after day after day, giving not a thought to treasure, but here it comes. Maybe you've been just walking through life and you haven't tried to look for the deeper things. And you came to know the Lord by what seems to you to be completely an accident, even though we know it's not because God seeks us and draws us and, and bids us to come to him, right? He invites us. But maybe you weren't looking for God at all and you literally stumbled into the kingdom, at least the way you see it, right? Maybe some of you are a combination of those two things. Maybe you weren't looking for something and then a life event happened that prompted you to search for meaning. You know, a lot of people I know, they come to know the Lord after, you know, a major trauma in their life. They start asking those deeper questions. Or when children start to grow up and ask questions about the meaning of life and those kinds of things, and they begin to seek an answer, and they come to know him in that way. But we come to know God in different ways. All of our stories are different stories. The way that you come to understand Jesus is not the way your neighbor necessarily will. And that tells us something about the way that we ought to witness creatively and in a variety of ways to meet people where they are. To invite them into the kingdom in a way that makes sense to them, depending on where they are in their life. That's number one. Number two, do you love God only because of what he can do for you? Or do you love God simply because he is worthy and holy? See, the merchant... He wanted the pearl just because it was beautiful. He didn't care how much money it was worth. The value of the pearl and money was just an obstacle. Like, how much do I got to get together so that I can get that pearl? Right? I think a lot of times we let our Christian lives function in a transactional way. We, we, we give God glory in the good times. When things bad go bad, we blame him. We forget about God all the time until we need something from him. You know, some of us at times in our lives, you know, we haven't opened our Bible or spent time in prayer for, for maybe what seems as even years. And then all of a sudden, a loved one goes to the hospital and we're in a circle with our brothers and sisters. And we're asking God, oh, why me? Why them? See, if we're honest with ourselves, most of us really struggle with this one. We're a lot more like the treasure guy 
We, we, we come to know Jesus and we see all the benefits. We see, you know, the fire insurance at the end of our lives. We see the way that he breathes life into us now, that he gives us purpose and meaning. And we, we love to follow God because of what we can get. You hear this when you talk to people at church. You know, well, what did you get out of church today? What did you get out of the sermon? What did you get out of, you know, the ministry programs that, that are happening in the church that you're a part of? Maybe it's not about what you can get out. Maybe we're here or should be here to worship God simply because he's worthy of our worship. Do you know that even if God had not given eternal life, even if it wasn't a promise, we ought to worship God and ascribe him glory simply for who he is while we are alive in this lifetime. Because he's deserving of it. Because he's the God and the creator of the universe. Do you love God for what he gets you? Or do you love God because of who he is? Do you stand in awe of him as the most creative creator of all time? The one who made the stars and who promises Abraham as many descendants as those stars. Three. What is it that you are struggling to give up in order to fully surrender to God's kingdom? There's a German martyr named Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, during you know, the, the World War II time frame. Um, and he says this, he said, when Christ bids us, he bids us to come and die. See, even though these parables give us some different aspects of how we ought to approach the kingdom, the end result is still the same. When God calls us, we must be willing to give up all other things. Everything else in our life has to, has to die at the foot of Christ in order for his kingdom. Now, be careful here. What, don't, hear, don't hear me say that things outside of God aren't worth loving. I love my wife and my son. I would roll over every single other human being that has ever lived on the face of this earth if it meant the health and safety and well-being of my wife and my son. There's no two people on this planet that I care for more. And that's good, and God loves that. But he calls me to give them up for his kingdom, if necessary. It's not that I shouldn't value them, or even the things, my home, my security, my job, my wages, my car, my guitar, <laughs> and yeah, the newest gadgets that I get really excited about. It's good to, to like those things, and to love some of them, and to value them. It's a question of if if it's between those things and God, am I willing to give them up if necessary? Am I willing to hold things loosely and allow God to take what he needs in order that the kingdom might prevail? Because I have gifts, time, treasure that he needs to take from me in order to make the kingdom what it is, what he's calling it to be. That's the big question. What are those things that, as great as they might be, that you refuse to surrender to the God of the universe? What are those things? We need to pray about how we might move in a direction where we start to trust God enough to give those things up. These, these are the kinds of things that we can ask God. See, how do we come to value him above all else? We simply ask him to shape and mold us and to change our hearts.
If you find yourself saying, you know what, I, I love God, but if I had to give up this for him, I'd know I have my limits. Then pray about that. Don't sulk, don't feel bad, but pray and say, God, transform my heart. Allow me to see you for who you are. Allow me to understand the beauty of your kingdom as does the merchant and the field laborer, that when they see it, that the, the things just fade away. See, I love that this passage is short, and I think it's on purpose that these two parables are as short as they are, because I think they're just supposed to be very matter-of-fact. It doesn't explain the struggle that either of these folks had with giving up and selling all they had. It just says, yeah, they just went and did it. As if they didn't even think about it, because they were confronted with something that was so much greater. If you today do not know Jesus, I can tell you, he is unsurpassingly greater than anything that you have, want, or believe today. Anything. And he is worth giving up all those things for. He is worth elevating above everything else in your life. He is. He alone is the one who will bring you ultimate purpose and meaning he is the only one who can restore you to the right relationship with God. And to follow him and to walk with him is the greatest privilege that we could possibly have in this life. And if you don't know him, I invite you to ask questions, to come, to talk, to speak with any of our staff, our pastor, myself, our elders, the person sitting next to you in your house who might know him and you don't friend that you know that's gone to church, maybe you're listening to this on YouTube and you've never stepped foot in a church before, I encourage you to go and ask somebody who knows who's a Christian, why is it that you see him as more valuable than these things? What is it about Jesus that causes you to say, I'll give up all other stuff for him? Start those conversations. Don't sit back and wonder, what if? But ask and seek and he'll tell you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your majesty and your glory that is beyond our measure. Father, so that you had to come in scripture and give us metaphors because without your metaphors about field laborers and merchants and pearls and treasures, Father, we couldn't even understand how wonderful and holy you are. Thank you that you give us your word so that we might come to know and understand you, so that we know how to worship you properly, how to love you in the right way, and how to give up everything. And God, I pray for all of us, there are those things that we have a hard time giving up. I pray that you would soften our hearts, that you would draw us unto yourself, that you would allow us to see you, so that we might, just as these two guys did, easily cast aside anything else that stays in the way. If there is anything, God, that hinders any of us of walking with you this week, we pray that you destroy it, as scary of a prayer as that is. We praise you that you are the great one who is worthy. Father, we come to you this morning as we wrap up here and we say our amen and we ascribe you glory. And we pray that each of us in our homes would feel your spirit as we worship, as we come to close church this morning. We love you and we praise you. And all his people said, amen.